You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to reality here at the conservative conscience. This is your haggard Daniel Horowitz uh, back in the saddle here. And haggard as can be, if, if any of you are watching the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. You'll understand what I mean. I mean, this is the type of stuff they should have on at Guantanamo Bay. I mean, they talk about torture and water bordering. I mean, this this is real torture. Uh, just watching it, it's all a meanless sham, meaningless sham. Um, no matter who the nominee is, it's a waste of time. We learn nothing. Um, but at the same time, at the same time, I've been watching every bit of it obviously because i've dedicated so much of my time the last couple of years since i wrote stolen sovereignty to understanding the broken judiciary the broken congress not checking the judiciary the constitutional crisis that we face where we don't even understand the basic underpinnings of the three branches that we adopted what their powers are how they're applied what the checks and balances are who is the final say in constitutional interpretation so i want to see if anything of substance is indeed said, but just the politics surrounding this give you everything you need to know about both parties and the respective movements they supposedly represent, and how the Democrats will fight to the death to disembowel you, and Republicans are just feckless, distracted, aimless, visionless, as we spoke about um, on our Labor Day show on Monday, and uh, you know, today's Wednesday. Obviously, we have a day and a half so far of the hearings. I watched all yesterday. Now, as I'm recording, it's early afternoon, and the intermission time between, uh, I guess, after the first five or so senators asked their questions. And, gosh, I mean, I have so much to say. I really don't know where to start from. But I just want to dispense a couple other things before. We get to the confirmation hearings, um, the little tidbits, observations, as well as some of the broader themes, the deeper themes that you know we need to be focused on, as well as some of the articles I have out that we're going to link to in show notes. We're going to have a lot of content this week, written content. First off, there was an election last night in Massachusetts, this Representative Capuano, um, another very liberal Democrat went down in a primary and was defeated. So here you have liberal Democrats that absolutely uphold the Democrat Party platform, but they have a base that's focused, that's engaged, that is very um, in tune with the goals they want and the strategies needed to achieve them, as we spoke about last time. And indeed, they do so. And I just wanted to mention that because we don't have that on our side. We have failed um, to knock out incumbents, and there you go. So just to set the tone of the imbalance between the two parties, between the two movements, um, one movement is real, one is fake, and this is the outcome we get. And that's really going to be the theme for much of today's show. And, and really, you know, this is probably the first article I've ever written 
just published on the internet um, sometime during the Bush years, maybe it was 2003 or so, when I talked about all the Senate rhinos like Lincoln Chafee at the time, uh, who wouldn't even go as far as Bush wanted to go policy-wise, and I just noted this imbalance between the two parties, that you know, if everything is going to be about the two parties, which unfortunately now it is, until we change that, which we need to change that, then at least let's have a party that represents the other side. We don't. We don't have a movement that's focused. We have a movement that is so distracted that all we're interested in is memes to own the other side. And let me get to another piece of news. Kim Kardashian is back in the White House with Van Jones meeting with Brooke Rollins and some of these other blank holes in the in the White House, um, Koch brother dudes, promoting another clemency. I don't know who the individual is. But again, isn't this interesting how none of us seem to have an in to the White House? Hey, Mr. President, could you fulfill your campaign promise on the budget bill, which they're about to betray us on, and actually fight to the the death for your immigration priorities? No. It's all jailbreak. It's the Kim Kardashian agenda. The Democrats, the far left, they have an in and avenue to promote their policies even when they're supposedly out of, out of power. We don't have much of an in to promote our policies even when they're promised on the campaign trail, even when supposedly our people are in power. So jailbreak is, is still getting another uh, uh, breather there, breath of life, and um, – Again, I mean, that's that's the imbalance between the parties. You got a farm bill conference committee spending $900 billion Obamacare-style price controls and monopoly creations on the commodity side of agriculture, um, endless food welfare, albeit the Senate version has no work requirements. The House bill has like 5% work requirements, and even those create this costly job training program that wipes out any savings you'll get from that. So they're going to conference. Oh, and by the way, so what's the biggest point of contention in the farm bill? Not the subsidies, not the food stamps. It's the jailbreak movement. Hey, you know, believe it or not, this is how powerful they are. They make their appearance anywhere. Um, they are focusing on allowing criminal those who have criminal convictions for drugs to grow industrial hemp, H-E-M-P. So that is their priority there. Um, as far as the budget is concerned with, with the Kavanaugh nomination overshadowing everything, they are just pedal to the metal. Um, just so you know, it's a dual strategy. They're immediately just passing a CR that will just ratify the status quo, meaning – increased spending and none of our immigration riders, which means nothing gets done, which means nothing will get done legislatively and nothing will get done in the budget, which means there's no utility to winning elections because it's only going to get worse after November when they get crushed. Even if we do better in the second term, we're never going to get 60 votes. So your only leverage to force changes to the filibuster and force the Democrats' hand is to have a budget fight. They will not have it now. They will not have it ever. And in addition, for the long-term budget bill, you know, like picture maybe in December, after a few months of operating on a stopgap bill, they're actually going to conference with the Senate um, – on their minibus bills, if you remember that Labor HHS Department of Education bill we spoke about in detail last week uh, that actually increases spending on all the worst programs, that's what we'll, they'll ultimately adopt. But either way, our priorities 
on life, on healthcare, and certainly immigration will not be a part of anything. And it's just so sad because we're getting crushed in the polls. There's new generic ballot polls out anywhere from 10 to 15 point lead for Democrats. That portends a wipeout, a wipeout in Congress, a wipeout um, in state legislators and everything. And They'll control redistricting for a decade, and of course, the courts won't stop their gerrymandering like they stopped Republican ones. And you know, it's very sad because the one time Trump actually does well is when he gives a televised address, and I advocated that he um, give such an address before Congress on immigration, on sovereignty, on security. Uh, my buddy Todd Benzman from Center for Immigration Studies just has a new report out on on. Somali smugglers brought in at least 50 migrants to the Texas-California borders recently. That would be a great issue for him to talk about. Um, Hopefully, we'll have him on the show. I know I'm talking quickly. I'm just trying to dispense of all this stuff. Um, And to segue back into Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court hearings and the petulance from the Democrats, the fecklessness from Republicans, the aimlessness of conservative politicos, and the misunderstanding of the fundamental role of the judiciary and the role of Congress and the other branches in constitutional interpretation. Isn't it tragic how we're ignoring the budget bill, which is more important because we have to just get Kavanaugh in? When will it really matter? You know, watching Kavanaugh say, and he, the guy, he's a nice guy, he's a good guy, I have nothing against him. So basically, vote Republican so we could say, Casey and Roe are precedent on precedent, settled precedent, without any hesitation, yet, oh, I'm great because I have more women law clerks and I have 25% minorities. And by the way, that really pisses me off. That really bothers me. And, and it's the embodiment of what a DC creature which Kavanaugh is, and all the people supporting him. And I'm watching all these conservatives tweet out, Ooh, look, he's here. I'm not a racist. No, I have more LGBTQ, FU, CK, QU, law clerks than anyone else. I mean, this is the point. We want a talking point, you know, rather than confronting evil head on and what the Democrats were doing on this committee and saying, this is what the Constitution says, this is what the clause means. Now, obviously, a judge doesn't give declarations on the Constitution. He rules on cases and controversies, so I would have to see the facts and and the fact patterns that come in front of me, so I can't prejudge a case, but here's generally what that clause of the Constitution means. No, we don't get any of that. Um, instead, everything the left wants is set a law because we want to avoid conflict. No, we got to get him confirmed. Um, but he's great because he went out of his way almost to the point that it's pretty clear he used affirmative action um, to get more law, female law clerks. And, and I know we have a lot of um, young conservative law students in this audience. Tell me if you disagree with me. My understanding is that the playing field, if anything, is tilted the other way. There's downright more women in law schools now. I don't understand what this business of there's impediments to them getting clerkships, and he he had to find a way to, you know, rectify that. If anything, we're overcorrecting, just like we are in a lot of this stuff. Obviously, you go back 30, 40 years ago, it wasn't that way. But I mean, that that ship has long sailed. I, you know, we should never believe in identity. We should always pursue meritocracy, but. 
just the facts behind it are wrong. So I, I don't understand this this business, but but that's, you know, vote for him because, see, he's not a racist. He's more Democrat than the Democrats are. See, he, he's not a threat to Roe. Oh, okay. I mean, Republicans ran, this has been the sham for 45 years. Vote for us for better judges so we could overturn Roe. Now, I understand this whole thing is a shell game, but there'd be one thing if we have the, see, we're getting accused of everything under the sun, no matter what. If we would nominate a Susan Collins to the Supreme Court, the Democrats would go crazy. They have to. That's the way they're set up. So if they're going to go to the mattresses, which they did yesterday, unprecedented, interrupting the committee chairman four seconds into his opening of the hearing and just refusing to respect any sense of tradition and committee rules, interrupting without being recognized by the chair and just completely running over him, which was Grassley's own fault. They will just, you know, you look at the Democrats, they pound the lectern, they pound the table, they believe in what they're doing. They'll fight for the, to, to, to the Dickens to disembowel the other side. So, at least get that guy. You guys, you know, they accuse us. You guys got commitments, litmus tests from Trump. Say it's not true. At least let's get the commitments. I mean, there's one thing if we knew where he was, like the Democrats absolutely know every one of their nominees, where they are in key issues. We all know where they are. There's never any doubt on any of the critical political issues, which should never be in the court anyway, or, you know, even if they rule on them in a given case that shouldn't be given the final uh you know, political status, but we know where they are. We don't know where Kavanaugh is. And in fact, he was pretty clear, like Gorsuch was, and I would argue even more clear, that no, I mean, this is super precedent. I don't have the exact words in front of me, but I mean, to me, tell me if you think I'm wrong, I think that Republican nominees are getting more emphatic that they're not overturning Roe as time goes on. So, you know, it used to be they're just like Ginsburg. I'm not going to talk about it. But they do. Now, I'll tell you the way, the only one who didn't do it was Alito. Roberts was bad. Gorsuch got worse. And I would argue this was downright the worst. Alito, if you look at what he said on the issue, made a lot of sense. I'm just trying to pull this up from an article. It's from a CNN article from 2006. You know, Alito said, quote, he'd keep an open mind, right? Which is, that's all he said. And he said, precedent's very important. It gets a special justification would be needed to overturn it. Um, but he tempered his remarks by saying strict adherence to past ruling is not an inexorable command. And he gave cases where he said, like, look, you know, things change. So it was a very balanced approach. He never said that the Constitution protects Abortion, whatever. Go back and compare Alito's comments to Roberts, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. I think Kavanaugh's the worst. And did I not get the memo? What, so he's lying and he's going to rule the other way? Maybe. Now, you guys know, anyway, we don't have four votes as it is. Roberts, for sure, would not vote that way. At best, we have three, but I really don't have confidence in Gorsuch. At least not completely. Um, you know, again, it depends on the case. There's the Hellerstadt cases, the Gosnell laws, the you know regulations of abortion clinics where they could operate, what sort of procedures, um, regulations, healthcare regulations they have in place. You know, there's a lot of things short of downright overturning Roe. Um, but 
I'm just saying, like, this whole thing's a lie. You know, I believe, as we're going to discuss, we need to strip the courts of jurisdiction, devolve them to state courts, and uh, that's the way to solve this. But if you're going to be all, oh, let's appoint better judges to overturn it, that's the fundraising racket. Well, I guess someone didn't get the memo here because that's not what he's saying. So that's what I've seen so far. No substance from Republicans. You know, I have a list of 15 topics, each one with a couple of questions, that I would like to know if I'm getting a real originalist. And these aren't puff questions. If you're a real originalist, you should be able to answer them. If you really like Clarence Thomas, you should be able to answer these in the affirmative. What is your view on Article 3, Section 2, on Congress's power to jurisdiction strip? I would quote from him the recent Patchett case from Clarence Thomas, saying they have that power to do so as long as they don't say in Jones v. Smith, Jones wins. You have civilization issues on immigration is never touched by any Republican. So far, no Democrat did, but only about two of them, I think, got questioned, so maybe they will. Um, The only thing, the only issue a Republican has asked so far is the Chevron doctrine. (laughs) You know... Just, just totally off. And, and another thing is, Kavanaugh said the the four best moments were, you know, he he gave one was Marbury versus Madison, four best judicial moments. Another one was Nixon v. U.S. Nixon v. U.S. is the bastard child of Cooper v. Aaron in 1974, demanding that Nixon give over the tapes. Now, this is not a matter of saying whether Nixon was right or wrong, um, you know, and saying Nixon didn't do bad stuff there. It's a matter of this was a separation of powers um, question. And, you know, in a separation of powers question, if Congress wants to get those tapes out of him, they have a lot of tools to get out of him, and most notably impeachment, which ultimately they were going to win on. But yet the court came in there. Trying to find it here, the exact wording. Very dangerous. The court came in, and where where's the language here? And I'm sorry, I don't. I, I thought I had the window up in front of me, but they basically said, just like in Cooper v. Aaron, that the court is that it's, it's their job to be the final say over over separation of powers questions. The final say. Um, that's a problem. That was not properly. Yeah, it, it, they, they said SCOTUS is, it, it, it's their job, quote, as ultimate interpreter of the Constitution. That's a problem. This is a constitutional crisis when we have our best dream nominee that we waited 45 years to get the fifth vote when we don't really even have the fourth with Roberts there and who knows what Gorsuch is and Gorsuch has screwed us on immigration. But this is what we waited for, and him nor any Republican could get to the core question. This is the most important question of the Constitution. Who interprets the Constitution? Now, we're going to talk about this somewhat today, but I don't have time to rehash everything. For those of you who haven't heard, this is, today is episode 274. Go on to Westwood One's Omni site or, or iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get the podcast. It's on all the main, main – uh, uh, platforms, 
go to episodes 248 and 249 and listen to my full history of Marbury, the difference between judicial review and judicial supremacy, um, who gets to interpret, who has the final say. It's all the branches with their respective powers pushing back against each other. But certainly the weakest unaccountable branch is not the final say, and that is very problematic that everyone seems to think that. Even Mike Lee and Ben Sass, who I think got the closest to having substantive opening statements yesterday and addressing the core points that the judiciary has too much power, that we're having too much focus, and I, and I agree with everything they said. But even then, there was a slight off-message part of Ben Sass's much vaunted, much praised on the right you know, opening statement. He misidentified what judicial supremacy is and what the cause of it is and what the solution is. And that's what I did in part in my piece today. We have two pieces out so far in the hearings, and we'll link them in show notes. He identified the main problem as Congress being weak, not in checking the courts, but in checking the executive. In the delegation of their authority, the regulatory authority in particular, to the executive branch, the administrative state. That's been the the issue with conservatives, the ultimate issue, you know, of the, of existing the last couple of years, and we all agree on that issue. There is too much delegated authority. But any any person who understands what's going on, ninety five percent of the violence to our constitution, and our society, and our civilization at the hands of the courts are not from vague statutes or statutory interpretation. It's from constitutional cases where they downright bastardize the Constitution and say there's a constitutional right to immigrate. There's a constitutional right to abortion. There's a constitutional right to gay marriage. There's a constitutional right to transgenderism and, and you know accommodations in bathrooms. There's a constitutional right to early voting and voting without photo ID and this type of redistricting. Go through my list of um, you know – uh, just numbered, you know, Google Daniel Horowitz most dangerous Supreme Court cases, worst cases, worst lower court cases. I've, I write them every few weeks, every few months. Most of them are constitutional. They have nothing to do with this. This is in the psyche of the Federalist Society type of people. And I know Ben Sass. I don't think he's a lawyer, um, but he's very well respected by them. He's obsessed with the administrative state. Well, you're calling upon the judiciary to get involved in cases because you wrote vague laws. No, we're not calling upon the judiciary to do anything. I don't think it's their, necessarily their role as certainly exclusive or final role. It could be a partial role in you know these lawsuits. Congress, if, if you feel the executive has too much power, Congress needs to address that. It's not the judiciary's role to strike that down so much. You know, it's not. You know, you know, sometimes it might be appropriate, but that's not the main problem. I mean, I don't disagree with him, but it's just off message. This plays into the legal libertarian profession that rather than being bothered by the judiciary being used as a sword against our constitution and so many other cases, they want it to be used as a shield um, to go after you know policies they don't like, which sometimes they're right. But that's not the main problem here. That's not the main problem. They're all missing the point. They all seem to be saying, you know, the the problem is that we we've all merged our language into the same bromides and platitudes, 
And we're not specific about what is it we want to address. We're like, I don't want someone legislating from the bench. I want a judge, not a politician. Interpret the law, don't remake the law. The problem with with that stuff is it, it all gets glossed over that basically everyone's agreeing to the premise that the courts are the exclusive and sole and final arbiter of everything. And really now with only 60 out of 50,000 cases getting before the Supreme Court a year, um, it, it's now the lower courts that are arbitrarily form shopped by the ACLU and NAACP and others that have the final say. They agree to that. They're just like, look, I want – Clarence Thomas is on the court that will properly interpret statute in the Constitution, not your guys. But the problem with that debate is you can't win because the Democrats are saying, what do you mean? We're interpreting the law. The law says that um, you can't discriminate against uh, Somali immigrants. That's what the Constitution says. So I'm interpreting it. I'm saying you can't win that. What do you do when the other side installs people in the judiciary that say – this is the law. This is the Constitution. This is the problem we're having. So then you have to – the question arises, well, who gets the final say in the Constitution? And nobody is addressing that, but they're implicitly going along with this notion. And certainly Kavanaugh did that with that Nixon v. US comment and also when he talks about our independent judiciary being the crown jewel of our constitutional republic. Really? The crown jewel of the constitutional republic was – a bicameral legislature, one more accountable to states, one more accountable to direct representation that's independent from the executive branch, unlike a parliamentarian system. That was the crown jewel. There's an important role of the judiciary in civil and criminal cases um, and, and being one avenue for people to fight back if they believe a fundamental constitutional right in an individualized case with legitimate standing before the court is um, implicated in, in, in a given case, but it's not the most important. It's not the crown jewel. And then he went on to say, um, where is this? So yeah, the crown jewel comment. And then he went on to say that the, the Supreme Court is the last line of defense for the separation of powers and the rights and liberties guaranteed by the Constitution. That is not true. I believe in judicial review if you understand what judicial review really is and what Marbury is. That if you have – look, if government says anyone named Daniel Horowitz has to pay an extra 10% in taxes, so I could go in front of a judge – and say, I don't. Could you give me relief not to pay the, that extra ten percent because it's unconstitutional? Um, and and they could do that, but it's not the last line of defense. It's not that. Oh, this is our tax law. This is the way we do things. Um, it's one avenue, but the avenue you would hope is you appeal to your members, you appeal to the other two branches, you appeal to the states, you appeal to the media, you appeal to writers and body politic, and you know. As my role as editor of Conservative Review, I'd argue against it. I would, you know, it's all of us together as a people. This is the Constitution. Um, in my article today, if you haven't seen it, I, I summarize my hours of lectures and tens of thousands of words of writing in my book into one graphic of two systems of governance: the one the founders envisioned and truly adopted. And the, and the system that they didn't adopt, but it, unfortunately it's prevailing. And one, the Constitution stands above everyone, and we all are given certain 
powers and avenues to get involved in it, albeit the courts have the most limited avenue, has to be a very narrowly defined case or controversy. And the other one is, no, the courts stand on top of the other branches and are the final interpretation of the Constitution. And, I mean, that's that's bull. It's utter bull. You know, Madison made it very clear that this is not true. You can't say that. I mean, it, it just – it boggles the mind how people could be okay with the courts being the final veto power. That's not an important role. That means that there's nothing else. That means that there's nothing else. It, it, it just <laughs> – I'd like anyone to challenge that notion. Like, I, I don't understand how that's not worse than King George. It's insane. Even King George would never redefine marriage. You know, it's just nuts. It's totally off the wall. I just don't know what planet these people live on when they talk about this stuff. I really don't. But what Madison said um, in the Federalist Papers, and my brain is just drawing a blank, was it Federalist 51, 38? Um, But basically, the several departments being perfectly coordinate By the terms of their common commission, neither of them, it is evident, can pretend to an exclusive or superior right of settling the boundaries between their respective powers. I I mean, it, it was obvious. How could you come and say that, that, okay, the executive branch and the legislative branch have a fight? And you go to the courts. I mean, you could, if there's a valid case or controversy with legitimate standing that arises as a result of that, they could render an opinion in that case, and you could decide that they have the right and the body politic could adopt their, their, their opinion. But it doesn't have to be that way. They have one say in the matter. They have one say in the matter. By the way, it's Federalist 49. Um. So this is driving me nuts. Everyone is wrong. How could we even have a discussion? Like, we're not having a discussion about the 800-pound gorilla. Who's the final arbiter? What's the role of Congress in checking the judiciary? Jurisdiction stripping. What's the role of state courts? I mean, this is important stuff. You don't have to say, you don't have to talk about cases that come before you. But generally speaking, you know, all the... Supreme Court nominees have been scholars, and, and we'd love to hear. I mean, no. The left is just wants to bash. The, the Republicans just want to give softballs to pass the time. And, uh, and we get nothing. So I have a list of 15 questions we know nothing about. 
And certainly nothing about the, the antecedent to all of this, which is who decides that? Who decides that? It, it's just so disappointing. So before I go on and get to just defining the main problem we have, what the solution is, I just want to go back to one quick thing because, again, you know, the hearings are on the background and Durbin had his line of questioning on on immigration. And if you go back, and I'm going to try to find this for show notes, I wrote a piece on my problems with Kavanaugh. Not, not you know, really bad problems, but, you know, just concerns. I think I had about four uh, cases, and they weren't just cherry-picked opinions. It, it, it showed a certain pattern of what I'm concerned about with a lot of Republican judges, that they too much entertain the toxic, unconstitutional precedent of the other side. When I say precedent, I don't just mean, oh, if you're a lower court judge following Supreme Court precedent. Yeah, I get, I get that. I get that. And that's a whole other debate, but I, I, I get that. Um, I'm talking about even where the Supreme Court doesn't dictate that and you know, you, you take on their um, premise. And, and one of the cases was this recent Garza case. I was one of the first people to write about it. Now, a lot of people are talking about it once Kavanaugh was nominated. But Basically, the D.C. Court of Appeals ruled that there is a right for an illegal alien to not just get an abortion and demand an abortion, but that that government cannot release her to a third party. Government must directly drive her to an abortion clinic. This case is so egregious, you know. Putting the judiciary aside, just everything we talk about from a political standpoint on immigration and sovereignty, this is an invasion. This is why we have a federal government to stop this nonsense. Um, you know, you you listen to Durbin's question. He's like, "You ruled that this person can't get uh, this immigrant." Government's taking her rights away, and it's unbelievable. We're minding our own business. Someone comes here, breaks into our country, and by the way, Durbin lied about the circumstances on it. He said that you know she found out about it afterwards. It's not true. Uh, Karen Henderson and her, her dissent indicated that from the documents they had, um, she came explicitly for it, and this is happening in many other cases. So this is clearly a trend we see now. We now have abortion chain migration where they come here for welfare you know they come here for a job now they're coming here for abortion and often for um sex change operations too that's the latest thing uh, because they don't allow either of that in mexico they don't allow elective abortions and she comes for that purpose so even if you believe roe and casey are god-given there's no way you could apply I mean, we don't apply the most inviolable parts of the Constitution to foreign nationals, certainly a BS-added part, a right to an abortion. And our concern at the time was that although Kavanaugh did rightfully dissent, he dissented only on the grounds that you know government wasn't trying to block the abortion at all, was just uh, you know releasing her to a third party. And my concern was that I understand that there's two arguments to be made here, even even accepting Roe and Casey, even as a lower court. Number one, this is not a violation of Roe because we're not blocking an abortion. It's just a reasonable um, accommodation for the federal government that they don't have to drive her directly and release her to a third party to be counseled on an abortion, which the Supreme Court has upheld other similar laws. I get that. But then there's the immigration aspect that – 
even if they're blocking the, the, the abortion straight up, she's an illegal. She doesn't have a right to it. Since when could you break into the country and demand that? And that was Karen Henderson's dissent. And what we noted is that although you can't always read into different types of dissents when there's multiple angles, this is the antecedent to the entire case. It's built on it. You can't not address that. And it's very disturbing. <clears throat> he didn't address it. That was my point. So I'm even more disturbed. This happened a couple minutes ago. Durbin asks about it. Obviously distorts it. And and by the way, so you know, to begin with, you understand that they should not be treated like refugees. These young, whatever, coming for um, an abortion. She came on her own. And most of them have family here. They're not unaccompanied aliens. They're not victims of severe trafficking. But then it was found out, and I could show you the document, um, she was 19. She lied about her age. So this is the big problem we have now. So she wasn't even entitled to real unaccompanied alien child accommodations. She's a regular illegal alien. It's not a minor. You know, so <clears throat> Durbin asked him about it, like, oh, you're 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 saying an immigrant can't get an abortion. You're violating precedent. And you know, he got, goes into the weeds like, no, 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 you don't understand. She was a minor, so therefore it was complicated. And we, we you know had to release this parental notification. There's no parent, so you have to have counseling, and that's all government was trying to do. It's similar to other cases where there's precedent, and, and, and that's fine. But then he actually said the words. Certainly, if this were an adult, they would have the right to an abortion. So it's not just Daniel Horowitz's inference inferring from him not signing on to Karen Henderson's dissent. He's directly saying that an illegal alien is responsible, is, is entitled to an abortion. That's a very big problem. Now, you could say he's just kind of like rushing through the answer, uh, saying what he wants. But you know, this is a problem. This is the biggest thing we're facing and nobody asks about sovereignty. This is the biggest, you know, abortion we kind of lost in the courts. I mean, we're not going to change that until we do jurisdiction stripping. But immigration is the new row. It's the new Obergefell. And Karen Henderson was one of the few to say, wait a minute. We're losing 100 years of precedent here. What's going on here? How hard is it for Kavanaugh even allowing for the fact that you act all PC and to just give the Democrats what they want at the confirmation hearing. Say, look, you know, even if if um, Roe and Casey's unassailable, but you can't say that an illegal has a right to it because even a legal immigrant doesn't have full, hardcore First Amendment rights to donate to a political campaign, Second Amendment rights to own a gun. So certainly, an illegal immigrant, a court created. Right, even if you believe the court got it right in row, this has nothing to do with that. I mean, how hard is it to give that answer? There's something called sovereignty, and you can't assert jurisdiction against the will of the country and demand access to an abortion. That is a revolutionary idea that the court has never upheld before, and and there's nowhere in the Constitution that says that. So certainly, there's no precedent. There's no Constitution. I, that that's why you know I had to rule that way. This just fuels that concern. I'm very concerned about it. But let's move on. The fundamentals here about the system of government we adopted, I'm not going to rehash <clears throat> everything we said on episode 248, 249. I really encourage you to even re-listen to it if you already listened. And certainly if you haven't, 
248, 249, you want to hear them in full and you'll get the full, my full take on what is the judiciary's role in constitutional interpretation, what it's not, what happens when the branches disagree and the various powers. But I want to posit, I, I, I want to do two things here. I want to posit a philosophical and historical proof why the current system of the judiciary as the final arbiter of the Constitution, as everyone seems to agree, cannot be true and is absurd on its face. I made the argument a little bit before, but not this you know, fully, and I think it's important to hear it. Number two, I want to discuss um, the remedy that I think our founders would, would, would support if they would see what's going on now. And that and, and and this I really wrote about in, in the article I'm linking to in show notes, but we'll just kind of summarize it for those of you who have not read it. Um, at the Constitutional Convention, there, you know, again, we, we, we spoke last time about the need for a vision. So there was the biggest visionary was James Madison. He came with a plan. He prepared a couple months before. He begged George Washington to show up and preside over it. He badly... He, he was nervous. He was antsy. He, he understood what we needed, but we didn't have it. We had a, this loose federation of states. Things were falling apart. We we're prone to um, external attack. Um, he, was, he was very concerned, to say the least. He came with the Virginia plan. He came with the Virginia plan that served as a foundation of our constitutional republic, but there were very important changes that were made to it that made it arguably a better document. And this plan was introduced by, ironically, was introduced by Edmund Randolph, even though Randolph at the end got kind of ticked off and um, left the convention, did not sign the constitution, um, as well as George Mason. So it's funny, and I think George Mason seconded the vote on the Virginia plan. And it tore apart the convention. The leader leader of the opposition was Patterson from New Jersey. Um, basically, Virginia was the largest state, and they felt this benefited them. What was the Virginia plan? Um, if you remember your history, Vir the Virginia plan included this famous Council of Revision, where in part, some Supreme Court justices would form a council of revision to put a negative to veto legislation they felt was unconstitutional. Now, that was rejected, and we didn't adopt the Virginia plan. We didn't adopt the, the opposing New Jersey plan. We adopted Sherman's Connecticut, Com Connecticut Compromise with some revisions here and there. Um, the fine print you know, debated throughout August and um, September, but, but really the key was in June and July is when all this stuff was was uh you know just fully vetted out. Now, Mark Levin has made this argument before I've made the argument, but I want to make it in more detail. The, the the basic argument is well what we have now, meaning we don't really have it, we didn't adopt it, that is not our social contract, that is not our system of governance, but nonetheless our body politic erroneously views it as such, we basically have a council of revision. Right where you know, pass a law, president signs it, oh, or, or a state legislature pass a law, governor signs it, oh, now it goes to the courts, oh, the courts struck it down, veto. That, that's essentially the way we treat it now, and it's, it's a terrible 
it, it, is, it is it is terrible. So so most people argue, well, you see it was proposed and it was rejected. So it's the biggest proof that that's not true. And that's true. But I want to make the case even stronger. You know, because it was always bothering me, like, you know, Madison is one of my favorite, if not my favorite founder. That sounds like a really stupid idea. We don't like the Council of Revision. Why would he propose that? I want to posit that if you understand the other elements of the Virginia plan as a whole, it was an entire different system of government, and it actually made a lot of sense. And once you understand the Virginia plan, then it makes perfect sense that once we adopted the Connecticut compromise, mainly the judiciary was not the main point of contention. In fact, um, it was always noted by all the uh, scholars on the Constitutional Convention that it was talked about the least because it was supposed to be – it wasn't supposed to be this. But if you understand, the main contention was the legislature. Remember, Madison said it, the legislature predominates. The legislature predominates. Nobody will ever tell you the legislature is not the main thing. They're not perfectly co-equal. They're not. The legislature has more power, but not only does it have more power, it essentially constructs 90% of the executive and judicial branches. The actual construction of it, not just the powers to kind of fight it, it actually controls it. So everyone understood the legislature would predominate. It was a question of what degree and how they're elected and the, just the interaction of the different checks and balances that was served as the consternation mainly uh, between the, the, the small states and the large states. But as a result, something interesting happened. Even though there was very little debate over the judiciary, the structure of the judiciary automatically changed when the Virginia plan, a foundation of it for the legislature changed for good reason. And I want to prove that what we're doing nowadays is the worst elements of both things that they never adopted that none of them would ever even propose. And... Um, if you go to Wikipedia and you Google um, Virginia plan, I just say Wikipedia because it's the easiest to find, uh, Virginia plan, New Jersey plan, Connecticut compromise, you'll see diagrams that I think best j- – just so you know because it's hard to give over through audio sometimes, especially those of you who listen driving in your car and you don't want to crash and takes con- concentration. I'll try to explain this as, as carefully as possible, but you, you'll, you'll see it, it will really jump out to you this point. And I think it will prove my point once and for all about the judiciary. Madison's idea really made the legislature very, very powerful in a number of ways. So obviously Madison started off with bicameral, but it wasn't so bicameral. What do I mean? Both the lower and upper house were to be elected by proportional representation. And, and as any of you who know anything about the Constitutional Convention, that was the single biggest point of contention. Uh, the lower states were like, what the heck? We're, we're screwed. You know, we're, we're done. Um, and, and that's why they, they were storming out. A couple of them even did storm out. Uh, they, they, were, they were just pissed. They were like, we don't need this. We'll go back to King George. That's tyrannical. But that was Madison's idea. He felt, you know, you can't have a state with three people getting equal representation. And both houses were elected, you know, straight up. So, you know, you have a very strong so-called democracy, almost direct, like, you know, the people um, voting. Now, Now, even though it is true that even under the original Virginia plan, the state legislators did pick 
the Senate. So it was somewhat more the state, you know, state representation, national, um, as opposed to direct uh, popular vote for House. But it was still allocated based on the people. It's very much the people directly. The people, the people must decide. So it was it, the the houses were much closer together in terms of their powers, in terms of how they're elected, who they represent. Um, that's number one. Number two, people forget this: the legislature, not the people, or some hybrid of the people in the states and electoral college, picked the executive, picked the president under his plan. That very powerful legislature is directly, you know, you know, proportional allocation. Very little checks on that. Very majoritarian. Very, very majoritarian in nature. Now has an added power. He, they picked the president. So I mean, think about it. You're, you're New Jersey sitting there. You're like, screw it. The whole thing's rigged. The big states got the numbers. They got the numbers in the House. They got the numbers in the Senate. And then by definition, they got the president. Okay. So, and then not only that, it gets even worse. That's number two. So, number one, talking about the unique things about the Virginia plan that were not ultimately adopted in, in, at the Constitution, but initially proposed. Number one, that allocation of the Senate as well as the House was based on population. So, Virginia would have gotten many more senators than Delaware would have gotten. Number two, the, the legislature, not the people or the states or a hybrid, would elect the president. People had no say in that. Number three, there was no presidential veto, asterisk, I'll get to that in a minute, hold the thought, there was no presidential veto. So basically what happens is, The people, majoritarian decide, majoritarian are big states, they decide the legislature, boom, they pass a law, House and Senate are closer together in the way they're kind of constructed than they are today. You know, you're seeing very little checks and balances there, and boom, they pass something, that is law, right away. That is, or, or de facto law, there's no presidential veto. You're probably thinking like, what the freaking heck, what was Madison thinking? Da 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 da. That is where the Council of Revision comes in. Rather than a presidential veto, you had a mixture of the not so not just the courts, but a mixture of the president and the Supreme Court, not the inferior tri- tribunals, the lower courts, but the federal Supreme Court and the president working together to say, "All right, legislature." We get to automatically see what you did is if it's constitutional or not, and 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 that part didn't work like on civil and criminal law based on case or controversy. It was like an automatic thing. It was like yeah, now it goes to the council of revision. That makes sense because otherwise it's like what the heck is to stop um, a massive majoritarian tyranny? J- just like I mean, th- th- there's there's nothing stopping it. There's no, the president's elected by these very dudes, and he doesn't even have a veto. But even then, where there's no other layer of a check, still the Council of Revision couldn't only be the Supreme Court. It had to also include a president who was somewhat, you know, 
again, he wasn't officially elected, but at least elected by the, by the Congress. So you can't have a judiciary totally running rogue shot over the legislature. You could weigh it. It seems kind of, it still seems kind of foreign, and I like the system we adopted better. And you could have deep discussions over why that was preferred by Madison. You know how much of it he was politically motivated because of Virginia, but you know it, it makes more sense. Now, fast forward to the system that we ultimately adopted, thanks in most part to Roger Sherman of Connecticut. You have a House and a Senate that are very different. The House is the people, the Senate is the states. Now, bear with me when I say that. I mean the original, what it was supposed to be before the 17th Amendment. Now, obviously, we um, you know, got rid of the state legislatures, but uh, electing senators. But picture before you know, the 20th century, not only did the state legislatures elect them, but they were elected based on, per- on, on equal representation of all states. California and, and North Dakota get the same number of senators. That's a very different body than the House. In addition, in addition, an underappreciated part was that the House would now have to introduce revenue-raising legislation. That was not in the original plan of, of Virginia, and that was a big deal. You're really having a check there that it has to be introduced in, in the House, and it couldn't be amended in the Senate. And you just up or down vote. So you see what I mean? You have very different institutions with different powers. See, nowadays the origination clause is just kind of irrelevant because rather than having different bodies check each other, we just have political parties. So whatever, they just, you know, across the branches kind of, you know, work together, both liberal parties <laughs> to, to just increase spending. But but that was um that was both that, that was very deliberate. So one clearly was an organ of the states, one clearly was an organ of the people, and that would conflict each other. You know, back then, especially, <clears throat> you know, nowadays it's just, you know, red and blue, you know, conservatives and liberals living in all parts of the country, you know, opposing each other. Back then it was very homogenous demographically by state. You know, states were pretty much all one way or all the other way. So you'd have, you know, a house that's very much dominated in those days by a state like Virginia. But then, you know, you get to the Senate and you're going to have <clears throat> Delaware, um, New Jersey, Rhode Island, and all the small states really uh, having an outside share of um, power. So now you see it's a lot harder to even get something passed against the status quo or majoritarian tyranny. That, that in itself is republicanism. Now, people are like, oh, legislature, uh, you're, you're, you're a majoritarian. But no, if you understand the bicameralism and the way, especially the way we adopted it as opposed to the Virginia model, that in itself is a very significant overlooked check and balance within the institution of the legislature the way we have the bicameralism. So that in itself is already a check on legislation. Then in addition to that, There's a pr- now a presidential veto. Your thing is meaningless. It didn't pass anything if the president doesn't sign it. And not only that, the president has, is not an organ of Congress. You have no say in electing him except with the tie and whatever when no one gets a majority with the House. But you know, in a normal case, it's now the people mixed with the states. Again, a hybrid. 
you know, you have a beautiful system. People choose the House, states choose the Senate, some sort of hybrid electoral college for the president, completely independent, um, plus an independent veto power. The notion that after all of that, a whole nother layer that's independently elected in a different way, and a House and Senate that are so independent, that after going through all of that, you would then have a council of revision that's to begin with, but certainly a council of revision that's only the unelected courts with no elected representation of the president included in that on top of the presidential veto as a third veto is absurd, is absurd. They never envisioned a veto. It was just in cases and controversies with legitimate standing if they want to grant relief to that plaintiff, but if they're trying to kind of affect an overturning of a law through that controversy – it doesn't have an effect of a veto. It's like, okay, you rendered your opinion that thing. Now the other branches are going to fight back. Whereas under the original system, you couldn't fight back. Right? It's like, you know, let's say, um, you know, Congress passes a law and the president vetoes it. That's a veto. You can't, and obviously there's the override, but let's put that aside. Let's say you can't achieve enough votes to override. You're done. I mean, you can't just go and do it. You know, this, uh, I don't agree with the president. That's not law. Whereas if a court renders an opinion in a case that taking their view of the constitutional rationale behind that case that allowed them to arrive at that opinion would dictate a certain constitutional interpretation, the other branches are not bound by that. And indeed, when they get it wrong, they're bound by their oath to follow the real constitution. It's a very important distinction I want you to recognize. And that is why I say this all the time, that if the founders envisioned them, it's the most absurd thing to have. See, we have this weird thing nowadays that we keep the council of revision component of an absolute veto when they get a case, but we didn't keep the part of Virginia plan that it goes automatically, that they get to take it. You still do need a case or controversy, although – the, with the abused rules of standing that they created, sometimes it's almost de facto it goes to them. But what I'm trying to say is that it's the worst of both elements. The reason they didn't give a direct avenue is because they didn't want it, this absolute veto. It makes no sense that if, meaning if they want an absolute veto power, so then they're going to tell you it's got to go to them. It's like, okay, if you happen to get lucky and get the right standing to get a fundamental question to the courts – then it's like a veto. But if you don't, then we all go along forever not understanding the Constitution properly. Really? That is the ultimate philosophical historical proof that there is no way our founders adopted a system as them as the final say on all constitutional questions. Um, That is my unique argument. If you disagree or you have something to add, feel free to email me at dharwitz at um, crtv.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. Um, I know I promised I'd say my solution of about not just jurisdiction stripping but devolving the power to the states and the three reasons why I believe that is superior. Um, but I do need to get back to the hearing. So I will just link to this in show notes so you have it in front of you. And – you know, we're going to definitely cover this maybe more tomorrow um, in greater detail, but I certainly appreciate your feedback. 
And and again, this is the vision we're lacking. This is the discussion we're lacking. But certainly when you tune in to the conservative conscience, you will get this degree of substance. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of the conservative conscience.